0: you're listening to a technology policy podcast here at CSIS. Today, we're talking to QX Branch's CEO, Michael Brett, about quantum computing, getting some insights from a hands-on practitioner of the dark art of quantum. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, of course. Tell us about the company.
1: So QBranch is a advanced data analytics company, which means that we focus on things like machine learning and mm-hmm. data science and uh, all of the enabling technologies that go into that. And so mm-hmm. the, the type of work that we do is we develop algorithms for our customers. So mm-hmm. we build and ship and operate algorithms. We look at things like pricing and risk and customer behavior, that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, but a technology we're particularly interested in is quantum computing and mm-hmm. how quantum computing will affect Um, Mm -hmm. algorithmic work uh, that we do. So can we accelerate machine learning algorithms? Can Mm -hmm. we improve the way that we do data science using a different type of computer?
0: What direction do you want to take the company? Where do you want to grow?
1: We're very commercially focused. We do some work with the US government, mostly more research focused um, rather than operational. So, uh-huh. But all of our operational work is with uh, commercial customers. And what we're really interested in is unlocking the value in very complex data sets. Mm-hmm. So not, not necessarily big data, but mm-hmm. just complex data and sort of helping humans make better decisions from that data.
0: Well, tell us the difference then
1: between complex data and big data. <laughs> uh, so big data is defined by its Bigness, it's volume and it's really? velocity and that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, complex data are things like um, the way humans interact with products, the way that we mm-hmm. make decisions and interact with each other, uh, the way we interact with markets. And it may not be a large volume of data, mm-hmm. but trying to find the signals out of that data is, is mm-hmm. very difficult.
0: Um, who are your competitors? Uh, so
1: in the data analytics space, yeah. we – compete with with everybody, including yeah. sort of the big consulting companies, the, yeah. big, uh, the big four and, you know, the likes of Palantir and that kind of thing. Sure, yeah. um, but then in the quantum computing space, it's uh-huh. a much smaller ecosystem. Uh, there's a, a few startups like QBranch that yeah. that are out there doing the kind of work that we do looking at applications. Um, and then some of the larger players like IBM and Microsoft are uh, also developing their application base for quantum computing. But it's, it's it's a really small ecosystem right now. We all know each other very well. And mm-hmm. uh, it's more of a collaborative effort at the moment to try to figure out what this market's going to look like.
0: Where do you find people to write the algorithms? Are they traditional data scientists or do, do you have to get a special flavor or what? Yeah,
1: it's, that's going to be one of the big challenges mm-hmm. for quantum technologies generally is mm-hmm. is a workforce that's adequately mm-hmm. trained for this. Uh, the direction that we come at it with is we look for high-quality software engineering first. Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. that's part of our differentiator is the the quality of our software. So we're looking at you know, how do we find uh, people with an enterprise software engineering background that can then transition into quantum technologies mm-hmm. generally, and and we work closely with with universities to give us yeah. the, the that talent pipeline. Some of the other quantum computing companies out there. Are Coming up from the other direction, going from quantum theory, physics, those computational models, and then try to do some more of the software side.
0: How hard is it to transition people? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, we find that if people are very curious and tenacious about learning and technology, then they find a way. Uh, to, to make that work. <laughs> Over the last couple of years, the number of resources that have become a- available for mm-hmm. learning how to do quantum computing has just exploded. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's becoming easier and easier.
0: What's the demand side of the market look like? Uh, who are you selling to? So the companies that are most
1: interested in quantum computing right now are characterized by the ones that are using the most cloud compute mm-hmm. technology. Not so if you listed out, the say, Global Fortune 1000, Yeah in order of how much they spend on cloud compute, the top of that market is is what's looking at quantum computing today. And so that's organizations that are in the, the financial sector, sure. uh, automotive, oil and gas, pharmaceutical, uh, and, and media companies uh, uh-huh. tend to be the ones that are using huge amounts of computational power at the moment. And so they see quantum computing as a, a differentiator, which can reduce the amount they're spending or unlock
0: new potential out of that. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's the correlation with cloud computing?
1: The use of cloud compute to do large data sets or very complex data sets, You know, their, mm-hmm. their business model is based around processing data. And so mm-hmm. if you take a large investment bank, for example, it's understanding risk, it's understanding pricing, that's core to their business. Yeah. And so they're using a lot of computational power to do that work. It's time consuming, it Can get expensive once you do a lot of it, and so quantum computing could provide a breakthrough there.
0: That's interesting. So it's really a a savings for these guys. Yeah, or unlocking new potential.
1: So being able to do things they couldn't do before. Oh, that's interesting. Because it takes too long practically, Uh or that it was too expensive to do that work.
0: So that's what I was going to ask: is we do a lot of machine learning here? How do you think quantum is going to change that? I think. Quantum computing
1: is going to be extremely powerful for machine learning. Um, Mm -hmm. And the reason is that the most expensive part of machine learning is the training time involved in that once you've trained an algorithm it's quite Mm -hmm. efficient to run but training an algorithm particularly on you know very noisy complex hard to interpret data is an expensive thing to do Mm -hmm. and if you're a designer of that algorithm you want to put as much human design into that as possible which means iterating through that design loop over and over and a quantum computer may be able to allow us to reduce that training time Significantly, so mm-hmm. on each training loop, higher accuracy, and therefore less training loops required to get the answer that oh. we're looking for.
0: Do you use big data sets? I mean, where do you get your data? Is that important
1: for your work? So data is the new oil to us. It is the <laughs> the raw resource that allows us to do our yeah. work, uh, and then we refine that with with the algorithms that we build. Mm. And so, you know, when we work with our commercial customers, mm. we're working with their data sets. And so, say in, in the oil and gas industry, mm-hmm. they will provide us with a sample data set to train algorithms on, and then we provide the algorithm back to them to work operationally.
0: Where are we in quantum computing? Um, a couple of years ago, people said it was sort of a mythological beast. I don't think anyone would say that anymore.
1: It's very real uh, today in that we've now got development machines mm-hmm. that we can work on, and yeah. you know, any of our listeners today can go to a, a number of different platforms today and sign up and start Mm -hmm. to program a a real quantum computer they're quite limited in capability at this point so we're talking like machines that are capable of doing some sample problems but we've we've crossed that threshold and now we're in a cycle of improving the capacity of those machines improving the quality of those machines reducing error and so the companies that are building these are in that design loop and i'd expect that over the next three to five years Mm -hmm will cross another threshold which will be the commercial use of these machines for real world problems that people find value in and pay money for. Mm -hmm. There's still a very long way to go and a huge amount of potential that will take many decades to unlock, but we're at the point now where we're really seriously thinking about what the first commercial applications will
0: be. So that's your answer to the question of how close are we (laughs) to quantum supremacy? Uh, Which sounds like a great movie title. I mean, I can... <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a great title
1: for a John Grisham thriller. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but <laughs> however you define the performance yeah. of quantum computing, um, the most important thing for either commercial customers or government customers is going to be, well, does it deliver value that I couldn't get from a classical machine? Right. And that's the thing that we're chasing hardest, is, is unlocking that, that sort of dollar per solve threshold in, in being able to find a solution to a
0: problem. How much of that is a software thing and how much of that is a hardware thing? Uh,
1: very much in tandem. So you know, one of the things that QBranch does with our hardware partners is help inform them of mm-hmm. the kind of hardware that we need to mm-hmm. unlock those applications. And that's IBM for you? I, it, it, yeah. The shirt kind of gives it away. So I'm, I'm wearing my uh, IBM uh, Network <laughs> uh, shirt <laughs> at the moment. So this so is what you th- call brilliant detective work. So. <laughs> QBranch is a, a partner with, with IBM, uh, with mm-hmm. Microsoft, uh, and hmm. a, a startup company called Rigetti uh, oh, sure. building uh, quantum computers out in Silicon Valley. Rigetti's they've, pretty they've, impressive. They've done a phenomenal job. They're by mm-hmm. far the, the leading uh, venture capital backed hardware company in, uh-huh. in the ecosystem right now.
0: That's amazing. What's a quantum sensor?
1: So quantum technologies generally across uh-huh. uh, a number of different themes, one of them is computing, which is where we focus, yeah. and then there's other themes like sensing and communications. Mm-hmm. Uh, so quantum sensing is when you use the the quantum physics, the strange behavior of that world to uh, detect signals that you couldn't otherwise detect in the mm-hmm. real world uh-huh. so sensors are being built today for things like gravimetrics so uh-huh. can we detect very small changes in yeah. gravity can we look inside say um, oil and gas pipelines using a different kind of sensor and detect uh-huh. things like volume and flow and uh-huh. consistency and that kind of thing so how
0: much is it is it the physical sensor and how much is it the algorithm running the sensor
1: Uh, So in quantum sensing, it's always a tandem of hardware and software, but the hardware itself is extremely important to creating that sensitivity around it and then being able to interpret it.
0: That's a good transitional point because I was in China last year and they demonstrated their quantum communications things. I got to meet the guy who came up with the Mm. quantum satellite they have, which Mm -hmm. was a test bed. But when he was talking, he, he struck me as the real deal you know, that he wasn't. Sometimes when the Chinese tell you they have a wonderful new technology, it's like, yeah, yeah, sure. He he struck me as the real thing. And one piece of evidence that supports that is at the end, I said, can I have your slides? And he said, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, quantum communications is like mm. the sort of third theme and the, the three that I mentioned is, previously, and is one of the technologies that's probably the nearest term to commercialization. Mm. Uh, and the Chinese work and uh, the demonstration of the satellite that they launched yeah. a few years ago, you know, that's extremely impressive. But there's other groups out there that are doing work that mm-hmm. are uh, very closely matched to that. And so I think that of the three quantum technologies that I mentioned, Quantum communications and quantum sensing will probably be the first into commercialization and then quantum computing after that.
0: This has been China week here in Washington. Maybe it's China year, but where do we stack up against the Chinese? You knew I had to ask that.
1: Uh, you know, it's, it's very difficult to know exactly where... Yeah. All the global efforts. Are. What we do know is that the Chinese are spending a awful lot of money on mm-hmm. quantum technologies generally, uh, that they have uh, very strong research capabilities that have mm-hmm. uh, been brought back to China.
0: That's a hot button one. What does brought back to China mean? Oh, as in
1: researchers that have spent time in the West and have done very good work and then returned home Uh uh, to find opportunity Mm -hmm. with the the spending in China. But in terms of actual capability that we can compare to Mm -hmm. and benchmark against, I personally don't have much insight into that, about exactly where it's up to.
0: So then if I ask you, where does the U.S. stack up, how would you answer that? Maybe there's other countries too. I mean, I know the Germans invest some money and the EU wants to get into this.
1: Certainly Globally, Mm -hmm. the amount of investment from uh, governments into quantum technologies Mm -hmm. has rapidly increased over the past few years. Um, I think Canada was one of the first to make major yeah. investments and then we we saw the UK with their UK quantum technologies program, the EU with their quantum flagship program. Uh, the US government announced the National Quantum Initiative uh, late last year and uh, we've seen other efforts from um, Australia, India, uh, Japan oh. and South Korea also mm-hmm. been announced in the last year or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, And so the level of investment has rapidly accelerated uh, to do that work. And I think that there's not a global competition Mm -hmm. to be the first out, but certainly a competitive environment to, you know, get this technology uh, into the marketplace and also take advantage of the strategic aspects of it.
0: Which is more important, private sector funding or government funding? I mean, which sounds like you've certainly done mostly private sector, right? Mm -hmm. So. Are VCs behind this? Is that enough? If you had to compare those two, private versus government, how would you look at it? There's certainly a role for all
1: of that. I think that government has a really important role to play in two aspects. One is continuing to support the basic and applied research. That needs to go into quantum technologies mm-hmm. to make it successful there's an awful lot of science that needs to be done to to make this work uh and so continuing to invest in things like the the national science foundation the mm-hmm. work that the department of energy does mm-hmm. what, what nist does mm-hmm. that's incredibly important the second role for government is to be a buyer of this technology from commercial services like us mm-hmm. um and and you know, thinking about the operational use cases that, you know, are relevant to to government customers. But then uh, venture capital funding uh, and commercial partnerships are equally important to help create the competitive environment and uh, opportunity for Mm -hmm. small businesses to get into this game too.
0: When you talk to investors, what do you say to them? Like, do you have a pitch deck?
1: (laughs) It's probably been a while, right? We sure do. we're We're always building relationships with with uh-huh. potential sources of capital, but what we show to them is is the vision for this technology uh-huh. that it's uh, quantum computing is a brand new type of computer. Mm. Uh, it has the potential to unlock uh, really exciting new capability that mm. can allow us to you know find value in data that we couldn't do before, or you know design new drugs and compounds and and mm. uh, chemicals that can be extremely useful and valuable to to the world.
0: What would a good national strategy for quantum computing look like?
1: Uh, I think the the U.S. and U.K. and Australia have done oh. a, a really good job at laying that out in mm. articulating a, a vision for quantum computing. That you know this is something that can be a really strong commercial, commercially led mm-hmm. uh, uh, effort to bring a new technology to market. Uh, while also keeping an eye on the strategic consequences of quantum mm-hmm. computing for things like encryption and, you know, national capabilities, um, and so investing in things like the workforce, the fundamental research that's needed, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. being able to you know, make sure that we can collaborate internationally with our allies and partners, mm-hmm. so not locking down the technology under export controls mm-hmm. too soon and that kind of thing, you know, that's that's
0: all strong components of a, of a good strategy for this technology. You touched on something we're actually working on here, which is largely with artificial intelligence. But there's a desire in some parts of the administration to, you know, our, our precious technology is flowing to China. And so we need to stop it. So one of the questions is, how do you make the case that closing is bad? You want to stay open? Sure, there's maybe there's things and maybe we can talk about that that you might not want to have go to China, but what's the view that you'd have on the difference between open and closed? Um, does it even make sense to talk about applying export controls to this stuff?
1: Uh, I think it's a it's a really challenging policy problem for all the reasons that you outline. Um, but quantum computing is inherently a dual-use technology. There's an incredible amount of value that it can help unlock mm. uh, commercially. And that the danger is that if you apply either export controls or standardization too early uh, to this, before it's had that chance to establish a commercial foothold, that it'll drive the innovation elsewhere in the world. And that the US uh, and Australia and Canada and the UK will lose out on the potential of this uh, commercially.
0: Are there any bits that you could restrict? Do you copyright your algorithms?
1: We apply the full suite of intellectual okay. property protection yeah. that that we can to software, yeah. but it this is a, a really challenging concept for sure. advanced software like this and and the ai folks are are also dealing with this as well yeah yeah
0: so you don't patent it or anything it doesn't does it make sense to even talk about patenting an algorithm? <laughs> yeah
1: there are patents every day coming out on on quantum computing uh-huh. uh, a lot of them are in the hardware space but sure. maybe in software as well for a small business like q branch patenting is challenging use of resources because yeah, then sure. you've got to go defend it if you, if you do that. And uh-huh. so there's always a balance between, you know, what do we keep as a trade secret that's sort of ours an in internal proprietary understanding, open sourcing that versus, you know, disclosing it huh. but protecting it with patents.
0: Do you use a lot of open source? Meaning both open source and that's where you get some of the inputs and open source in the sense that you put your work out there for others to look yeah, at? Yeah, I,
1: I think one of the really exciting and encouraging things about the quantum computing community already is how much has been open sourced. Mm, mm -hmm. And a lot of the frameworks that we use are open source frameworks. Mm. Uh, We've contributed to some of those. And and we've also put a number of our own algorithms out in the open source community uh, for people to use and improve on. Um, But we also keep a lot of our work internal and proprietary as well. And I think that quantum computing is going to be a big enough challenge as it is, that sharing what mm-hmm. we can mm. to help advance the overall effort is is really important.
0: We should probably get him to say that twice because I'm not sure that message has sunk in across the government. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: but then also, you know, capturing the value where we can yeah. as well. Yeah.
0: Who do you work with in that? Universities, uh, where does, where does the open source come from? And it's not like other kinds of software encryption. You have uh, sort of individuals out there doing research. Is it big institutions? Is it schools? Yeah, so it,
1: um, IBM, Microsoft, Rigetti, Google have mm-hmm. all open sourced yeah. major components of their quantum computing work. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly not everything, but you right. know, major parts of their platform are open sourced. And so you know uh, we can all then... Uh, make use of the benefit of that, but also contribute to those efforts, and and it's part of a collaborative effort, and at least provides a a common working environment for a lot of what we do.
0: Um, So one sign of, I don't know if this is good or bad, of what the Congress thought about this is I saw that the National Quantum Initiative uh, passed unanimously in the Senate. So what does that tell you? What do you think of the NQI? I
1: think it's a a really important piece of legislation that... Mm -hmm. uh, I was very pleased to see it pass last year. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a very small part to play in that by uh, some testimony to Congress uh, mid-last year and then also through the efforts of the Quantum Industry Coalition, which mm-hmm. is a, an industry group that's recently formed to help yeah. uh, guide measures like this. But I think the National Quantum Initiative overall is a really good piece of work. It was great to see it pass with so much support from both mm-hmm. sides and and the intent uh, make the U.S. a leader and continue to be a leader in this technology. And it, it did all the things that I outlined before, which is the basic and applied research by the institutions mm-hmm. in the U.S. supporting a uh, internationally collaborative commercial environment, and then helping support a workforce um, coming into uh, the quantum computing community.
0: So... Um- A couple of the senators I was talking to this week said that what the U.S. needed was another Sputnik moment where we kind of woke up and realized that we were behind. And there were two parts to that. The first is um, some of them really believe we're behind. Uh, Are we behind? It's really difficult for me to answer that. And I think that – I I don't think we are. But I was a minority view in this discussion.
1: I I think that the – The research organizations and the companies that are based in Mm. the US that are doing work in quantum computing are world-leading organizations Mm. and are Mm. pioneering their way through a lot of the problems. There's also organizations like that elsewhere in the world as well, and many of them in um, allied countries and partner countries that are doing uh, extremely good work that's also pushing that frontier. And so is the US... Leaps and bounds ahead? I don't think so. Is the US like with its peers? Yeah, it is. Um, Are we behind? Uh, I don't know about that. I think um, US government's got access to a a lot more information than I do about where the technology frontier is.
0: So when you look at at the idea of a Sputnik moment, what would a Sputnik moment in quantum computing look like?
1: (laughs) Uh, I think if there were a moment that showed a really significant advance in error correction mm-hmm. in quantum computing.
0: Error correction.
1: Yeah, if that part of the, hmm. the, the technology that's needed um, was able to be demonstrated by uh, an organization outside of the US, th- that would be a, a real wake-up call. Uh, for it. Uh, and the second one is, uh, just commercially, if, if it was revealed that a commercial organization was operationally using a quantum computer to do something incredibly valuable, mm-hmm. uh, that would be a surprise and uh, be a, a, a moment where we know that we've crossed that threshold into the operational use of quantum computing, and, and that would be really exciting.
0: So uh, there's this thing called the National Security Telecom Advisory Committee. Uh, it's, it's been around since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Okay. They are looking at don't laugh a moonshot on cybersecurity. One of their ideas was that we should we the U.S. should put a lot of effort into quantum computing as the way, and particularly quantum encryption techniques mm-hmm. as the way to save ourselves. What do you think?
1: Uh, it's certainly a moonshot. It's a you know <laughs> it's a big ambitious goal yeah. and uh, and worthy of um, of pursuit. And I think that. Should we be the um, the ones that are
0: surprised by
1: an advance in technology or yeah. the ones that create a surprising advance in technology? And I'd rather be on the creation
0: side. Um, what's the next best step for the U.S. and the initiative? What would you want to see us do in the next two or three years? Yeah, I think the, the National
1: Quantum Initiative is a really important first step and it mm-hmm. creates a, a really good framework mm-hmm. uh, for that. And uh, it would be good to see you know, that expanded to uh, add uh, additional sources of funding uh, and additional sources of um, uh, uh, collaboration between the different agencies and the potential users of quantum computing so that we get a really strong understanding of what the the government use cases are for mm-hmm. for quantum that will help inform industry. I think we also need to see a um, – so the National Quantum Initiative was the, all civilian-focused. It was all civil agencies. We need the defense and intelligence equivalent. Uh, to that, that's a that's a matching piece of legislation that helps coordinate the activities on the um, on the defense and intelligence side. What are the
0: challenges you have in machine learning? Starting with SAS, like a decade ago, yeah. and even before then, it's something called the National Opinion Research Center. All this will be cut out at Chicago. We've been monkeying around with how can you do big data? How can you improve machine learning? Where are you when it comes to thinking about this and the challenge?
1: Yeah, so I think there's there's two big trends that we're really interested in uh-huh. at QBranch, and one is um, explainability of um, uh-huh. machine learning models. Uh-huh. So if we as humans oh, yeah. are interpreting the results of, uh, uh, of a machine learning model, we need to know the decision-making framework that went behind that. So,
0: how you know, hard do you think that's going to be, though? <laughs> it's it's going to
1: be really sure. tough, and, and a lot of it's going to be on the human side yeah, in sort of that. teaching us how to work with machines uh-huh. and interpret what they're recommending to us as, as next actions on things. Yeah. I think the other really interesting area is in um, synthetic data, uh-huh. as in, oh, as in okay. creating training data sets sure. that are representative of the real world but are cheaper to acquire than real-world data. Uh-huh. It can help us uh, improve the accuracy and fidelity and the uh, take care of a lot of the edge cases around machine learning that we couldn't get with real-world data.
0: But most of your data is uh, finance, uh, energy. Yeah, we,
1: so we use a wide variety of data sources with mm. our customers, yeah, the, the the hard part is always sort of filling in the gaps in yeah. the data that you have and being able to train models on a sufficiently representative basis and so if you've got like one snapshot of the world is that enough of the world or can you go <laughs> create synthetically create some more of yeah. it so that you can train against that
0: have you guys simulated the 2020 election <laughs> you simulated 2016 right that's the,
1: right but after the
0: fact yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so well, it's always easier to predict yeah. <laughs> after the fact that doesn't count <laughs> uh, so we we did but some you came work to the right place
1: uh, so one of our researchers a uh, guy named uh, uh max henderson uh led some work to see if we could fit the predictive models for the 2016 election onto mm-hmm. a quantum computer and what the results of those forecasts would would be um, and one of the really uh, fun things about a quantum computer is that y- there's one of the tools available to you is to sort of link different data sets together or different attributes together and so um, one of the things that happens in an election is that various states move together or move against each other mm-hmm. so, Ohio and Pennsylvania tend to move together. And so the correlation between those states Mm. is very, very high. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we were able to model that Mm. in a quantum computer with a much higher level of um, interaction than what you can do with a classical machine. Mm -hmm. And so our models showed that uh, using the same input data from polling, we were able to get a less wrong version of the or or a, a stronger probability to to the Trump campaign than than the sure. Clinton campaign
0: okay that's my technique was a little simpler which is i just when I drove to the Eastern Shore, I counted Trump signs and Clinton signs. And yeah, I think that's, uh,
1: that's, that a, that's a valid g- data gathering source as well. Yeah. But as as we get closer to 2020, when we start to get that new polling data, we'll certainly put that into the, the model that we built That'd and, be great. and see what it looks like.
0: So one of the things we have here that's a big uh, issue, and I've been looking to see does it correlate with age. Many people here are worried about the effects of machine learning, AI, and improvements in computing displacing workers, changing the economy. It's true that Keynes wrote about this in 1930 and said it's not going to happen for the technologies he was looking at. Keynes was right then. Do you worry about this stuff? What do you think about when you think of social effect and impact on economies and societies? Yeah. So this is
1: very much my like armchair uh-huh. um, view of it. But well, welcome to Think Tank, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, But I, I think that it'll be... For some industries, there'll be a, a huge impact. So particularly for logistics, I think that there'll be a lot of automation in there and there'll be a, quite yeah. a large displacement of, mm-hmm. of the that workforce, which will be very difficult to deal with. But I think in the like knowledge worker workforce, mm-hmm. particularly where humans are making a lot of decisions mm-hmm. all the time, sort of judgment decisions, um, AI will be extremely supportive to those and help us carry out our careers much longer than we otherwise could have so mm-hmm. as we get older and our brains don't tend to work quite as fast and memory's a little harder to work with having a support agent that's able to you know, bear some of that cognitive load and help with like memory jogging and and recognition of patterns and recognition of anomalies that'll prolong our useful working life and and help us be more efficient and
0: effective tried to persuade some of these other analysts, you're going to have Einstein in your pocket, right? And so why was that bad? I'm more thinking at the other end, if you have an educational system that ranks people by some abilities now that we're going to be able to automate, we're going to have to rethink how you rank people, what you test them on, what you teach them.
1: One of the ideas I'm just fascinated by is whether we get to carry our AIs with us from job to job. So mm-hmm. as, as oh, yeah. you and I go to different uh-huh. uh, institutions to work for, do we get to bring our AI with us? And how do they talk to each other? So if you and I end up working at the same place sometime in the future, do our AIs figure out what we're both good at and sort of deconflict us and help us work better together as humans?
0: I've been thinking about that, too. I was thinking, The way I was thinking about it is, could you make an algorithm sign an NDA? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like... Mm. But that's going to be a hard problem is do you treat them are they individuals are they a subset of you yeah uh, you know what are they is is it as? part of our value proposition when we go to a new company yeah. that you
1: know not only we being hired as a as an executive and a manager to work there but is our AI part of that equation? Yeah. And if you've got a better AI, then you might be able to command a higher salary than otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's
0: what I tell people is it's going to be a team. Yeah. You know, you and your device. Yeah. Right. And the device will link to the cloud in some way. So there's a couple of places where you could draw a line. Yeah. And I think if you've spent more time training your AI
1: and spent more time with it, sort of developing that bond and understanding and like, you know, yeah. learning from each other, then there'll be more value to that that relationship. But yeah. that's, that could be some time off yet.
0: It's always fun to tell people. So, you know, SAS does the the airline s- call-in system. And, you know, you, when you, people don't seem to know that it links you to, when it says, you know, are these the first four letters of your name? It links, it pulls up your travel records, your status, your credit card stuff. All that stuff comes up immediately. And that's just a shock for people. Yeah. I think I it's that. good. Yeah. So one of our models here is give me convenience or give me death. But, uh, <laughs> That's a different thing. Okay, great. Thanks, Jim. This was fun.